This is the Women's Running Coaches Collective Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6. The Women's Running Coaches Collective wants to change the landscape of women in coaching by getting more women coaches in running and track and field. Please join us to help make that change. Go to www.womensrunningcoaches.org and become a member today. We can change the world of coaching together. This is the Joan Benoit Samuelson interview by Charlotte Lettuce Richardson of the WRCC. Welcome to Women's Running Coaches Collective. My name is Charlotte Lettuce Richardson, and I'm so excited today to have Joan Benoit Samuelson. Um, Joni, as most of you know, uh, is an icon of women's long distance running all around the world. Um, the image I always have of her is this tiny figure running alone on the LA freeway in 1984. I think it's etched in many of our minds. I also remember her coming into the stadium. I remember her running that first lap and then finishing up and that joy that she had on her face as she approached the finish line, you know, took off her white cap, her arms up in the air. And I think we all felt that incredible relief um, that she was finished. Um, what those images uh, meant to so many women athletes and also men and women throughout the world is immeasurable. What Title IX dreamed of accomplishing uh, was becoming a reality that day. Many of us runners and coaches remember that day, August 5th, 1984, and we remember where we were and how we felt. So I was home. I had just delivered my first son, Sam, on August 3rd, and I remember trying to send Joni a telegram to the Olympic Village. And of course, this was prior to any sort of cell phones we we would have had. And little did I know she actually was not in the village, so she never received the telegram. But I said, congratulations, Joni, you just won the gold uh, and ran 26.2 miles. Uh, but I just delivered my son, Sam, uh, and it took 26 hours of labor. Um, I so wish, Joni, we still had that telegram. So all of us who knew Joni didn't question the accomplishments, uh, but we marveled at the challenges she had overcome to get there. Um, how after knee surgery, just shortly before the Olympic trials up in uh, Olympia, Washington, and then just shortly before um, the actual Olympic marathon, she had been able to beat some of the best in the world. Uh, Greta Weitz, Rosamoto, Ingrid Christensen, Lorraine Muller. Um, and we, we also were so amazed that Joni had that confidence uh, to take off from that incredible group of women runners and, and go on her own and do it on her own. Um, so I always, I'm always thinking to myself, how did this amazing woman from Maine have the fortitude, the passion, the determination to be the first to win that gold medal in the Women's Olympic Marathon? So throughout the years, uh, with the birth of our children, um, the ups and downs of parenting, we've had many of those, I have at least, uh, the caring for our aging parents, uh, the joys and tragedies that we have both experienced. We have remained good friends. I've known Joni for over 45 years. We see each other as often as possible. She comes out this way to Oregon to see her daughter, um, Abby, and I get back to the East Coast uh, not quite as often. Um, and over all of those years, I've never ceased to be amazed at her continuing love of running. 
her ability to inspire others and to dedicate herself to the sport she loves and truly the sport that loves her back. So Joni, welcome. I'm so excited you're here and I'm so excited to actually see you today. Um, you know, that's sort of the one positive throughout all this COVID that we actually can do these Zoom calls. And um, so welcome, so happy you're here. Uh, tell us about how you got started running and why. Well, I think growing up with three brothers helped the effort. Uh, I grew up with two older brothers and a, and a younger brother. And I think I was always running to them for help or running away from them because I had teased or taunted them somehow. I also had a K through five principal in grade school who promoted health and wellness and physical fitness uh, during our formative years. And every year she held a field day in June when girls were allowed to wear pants or shorts to school. It was a one day way back when, when girls could do that. And I held my own against the boys in the running events. So um, that was really the start. And then when I broke my leg ski racing in high school, I started to run as a form of rehab. And I kept challenging myself with longer and longer distances and then tried to cover the ever growing distances um, faster and faster. And that pretty much was the beginning of my career. Well, I can remember having a jeans day at, in high school where you had to pay, they were, it was a fundraiser, you had to pay a dollar or something to be able to wear pants to school. So I think people don't realize that we, we had to wear skirts and dresses pretty much every day to school, for sure. That's so. right. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about, so, you know, fast forward into high school, and I know you ran a little bit on um, your track and field team, um, but then you decided to go to Bowdoin College. Um, and I know you were there for your uh, freshman and sophomore years. Um, talk a little bit about um, your decision into your junior year to go down to NC State to run. Well, I graduated from high school and then went on to Bowdoin where I played field hockey because there wasn't a women's cross country team back then. Now, I graduated from high school in 1975. Title IX uh, became law at the end of my first year of high school. So there still weren't a lot of opportunities. Um, they were growing, but they weren't all in place by the time I entered college. So I opted for, for field hockey um, because that was a fall sport uh, with cross country not being an option unless I wanted to run with the men's team. But I did continue my um, passion for the sport of running by running with the Liberty Athletic Club um, out of Cambridge, Mass in the AAU meets that took place on the weekends. And occasionally I would jump in a road race because road racing was just catching on at that time as well. And then uh, during the winter months, I um, did some AAU indoor track and field. And then in the spring, the same. Uh, there wasn't an indoor and outdoor track team for men or women. I did run some, some of the boys JV meets. Um, I even beat a few of the guys on occasion. Yeah, I used to run on the JV team at University of Massachusetts, and every time I beat one of the JV runners, they drop off the team, so I was always last. <laughs> so so you, you decided, um, rather than going a, a junior year abroad, you decided you might go down south to NC State. What was, what was that decision about, and how did it all go? 
Well, actually, it came down to uh, the University of Oregon and NC State, and I opted for NC State because it was a little bit closer to home and it wasn't going to rain as much in North Carolina as it uh, seemed to be raining in, in Oregon at, at the time and to this day, I guess. But um, that was my choice. Also, the head coach was from New Hampshire, so I thought he would understand uh, a northerner's ways down in the deep south and it all worked out well uh i did contract mono my second semester uh, of my junior year which was my first year down there and i did go down on one of the first title nine scholarships um, my father had three of us in school at that time um, one of my brothers was in medical school so i thought this would ease the financial burden a bit and I had this opportunity and and why not why not yeah and how did how did it work out so you'd been basically um you know playing field hockey running running a bit in meets AAU um sometimes some meets at the college level at the JV level but now all of a sudden you're on a team that has I'm imagining it's Julie Shea and her sister who, who was on that team at the time you're exactly right. It was Julie Shea. Mary Shea was not yet a college student. So she she followed, I think, the year after I left. But she would come to our practices and uh, they would push me. I mean, it was like every practice was a track workout. And I think that's why I, um, or a track race. I think that's why I succumbed to, to mono. I was just working so hard day in and day out. And um, I did not have the best dorm arrangement, so I was lacking in sleep as well. And, um, you know, I missed uh, my familiar ways at, at home and uh, here in the Northeast. So it all worked out. I, I grew up a lot as a person. I learned a lot about myself, what worked for me and what didn't work for me. And, and I think the biggest lesson that came out of that time um, in North Carolina was that one needs balance in their life in order to have success and in my uh, life and, and living situation living and learning situation was really um, not a balanced situation there was a lot of imbalance there and because I was eating with athletes training with athletes rooming with athletes and it I just do better in my own environment when I can balance the other passions uh, in my life along with that of running. I got to imagine too, Joni, even though you were already a great runner, you hadn't had that background that I think some of the people like a Julie Shea and a Mary Shea had. And so you were kind of, it was a little bit of baptism by fire, I imagine, when you got down there and had to have a race every day when you were on the track or, or whatever. So I'm sure that was difficult. No, it was difficult. Um, I, I had a lot of respect and I was um, very fortunate to train with Julie and Mary. I mean, they helped me with my um, desire to uh, go after my goals and to become a better runner. Uh, but day in and day out, it was not what I needed. And, you know, uh, their dad, Mike Shea, was on the... Uh, faculty at NC State. So he'd poke his head in a lot at, at practices and um, really great guy, but I just felt outnumbered and uh, outmaneuvered, so to speak. And, uh, you know, 
I wouldn't have asked for it any other way. And there were other women on the team who could push me, um, especially in the shorter distances. No, it's, uh, it's definitely an experience I never had, but um, I can imagine even knowing sort of the, the coaching experiences I've had where there's a lot of very competitive athletes um, pushing each other every day. Sometimes I'd have to sort of split them up a little bit to give them a break. Uh, not easy. So. so there's a new book out that Nike has put out, and I think it was put out by Mark Parker and, um, and Tinker Hatfield, and it's all about the graphics and the design of Nike. And uh, on page, I think it's 136 or 137, there's a Nike ad. And I'm assuming it came out in 2019 and it's got a picture of you, Joni, on a beautiful deserted road somewhere in Maine running away. You know, So we're seeing your back. And it says there is no finish line. And uh, you know, I know, uh, I've heard you say that so many times. And as far as, as I've watched your life, there really hasn't been a finish line in terms of running. Can you talk a little bit about um, that, the idea of there is no finish line and sort of your journey in, in, in running? Well, that ad first um, emerged in 1990. Okay. I remember the initial shoot when we traveled north to find the snow line because the photographer wanted snow in the photo and the snow was melting very fast uh, that year. So we had to chase the snow to Bethel, Maine and um, our son traveled with me because he went where I went because I was nursing him at the time. And I kept running this stretch of road where the snowbanks were still piled fairly high. And uh, I didn't know what the adage was going to be, um, but they wanted that shot of me running alone down a, a deserted road. And, and that was the initial poster. That was the initial ad campaign. And I didn't really understand what that meant. There is no finish line at the time. I just thought, oh, it's another Nike, um, another Nike ad, it's creative, you know, think of it as you please and make, make it what you want to make it and um, sort of just do it, you know? Right. So um, as I matured in the sport and grew older, um, I continued to set goals for myself. And when I knew I would never run some of the faster times that I'd run early in my career, I still had the passion for the sport. So um, I just would continue to run. And then in 2008, when the Olympic trials came to Boston, I thought, you know, this is a great way to end a career with an Olympic trial in the city where I started my career. I was 50 at the time. I decided to set a goal of running a sub 250 in the Olympic trials at the age of 50 and um, you know, put myself way out on a limb and then had a calf injury that almost kept me out of the trials um, and uh, made it through the trials, uh, ran a 249 something, so I did run a sub 250 and that was on sheer gut, similar uh, to the way that I ran in 84 at the trials, um, not knowing if I could really go the distance, let alone make the team. And I was met at the finish line by the three women who had qualified for the Olympics that year, Dina Castor, Blake Russell, and Magdalena Boulay. 
and uh, they waited there for me to finish, which was really nice of them. And we walked off into the sunset and that was going to be it for my competitive marathoning career. <laughs> and then the next year or the next fall, I received a call from Mary Wittenberg, who was president of the New York Roadrunners at that time. And she said, Joni, how would you like to come to New York to celebrate the 25th anniversary of your Olympic win, which coincides with the 40th anniversary of the New York Roadrunners? And I said, well, that tells a story. Sure, I'll come to New York. And so I wanted to run another 250, sub 250, and I did so. And that really started the storytelling that motivates me to this day. And the next year it was Chicago. So I'd run a sub 250 in Boston, even though it was a slightly different course, very different course, um, but they're tearing the course around the city in the river basin. And so I said, well, I might as well try for another sub 250 in Chicago. Then I will have hit all the three major US marathons with a sub 250. And the date of that race was 10, 10, 10. And I said, well, I can't pass on those numbers. So um, I ran Chicago and ran another sub 250. And then later that month, uh, it was the Athens Marathon, which celebrated the 2500th anniversary of the Battle of Marathon. And I said to myself, well, anybody who thinks they're a marathoner ought to have that on their resume. So I did fly over to, to Athens to run that event. It was crazy. It was less than a month after uh, Chicago. And, and uh, so I ran that. And then, you know, it was Boston 30 years after my first uh, anniversary or my first win in Boston. And then most recently it was, um, 2019 uh, when uh, I decided to try to run within 40 minutes of my time 40 years earlier and I accomplished that goal and then from there I went to uh, Berlin and ran with our daughter Abby um, and it was on our 35th anniversary uh, so uh, we we went over there Scott and I went over there with Abby and um, you know, that gave me my fourth star in the Abbott World Major Marathon Series. And, um, you know, I'm looking for two more stars in that series, which will put me into my sixth decade. And we'll see how the story uh, telling progresses from, from where I am right now. Right. Well, you know, uh, truly there is no finish line for you. And I, and I, th I think it really um, speaks to a lot of people in terms of their lives. You know, uh, you know, as we move forward, we hopefully always set new goals and new things that we want to do and learn and accomplish and all that. So, yeah, it's, um, I, you know, I don't think I realized how long ago the first there is no finish line. Um, and so that's a wonderful story. Thanks a lot, Joni. That's great. Um, so what kind of training over the years has worked best for you? And how did you discover that? I, I hear so often from runners, you know, this isn't working for me. Or, you know, you, as a coach, I'm a, I'm a coach of high school kids. You know, I can see it often. You know, what works for one kid does not work for another kid. Um, so talk a little bit about how you discovered, you know, what was the best training for you? Well, you know, my whole career has been totally by the seat of my pants. And, <laughs> you know, like I did in LA during the Olympic marathon, when I broke away from the field, I decided that I needed to run my own race. And like you said, with your high school athletes, you know, what works for one athlete isn't going to necessarily work for the other. And you can't run anybody else's race except your own. And I was not running my 
own race in the early stages of that marathon. I was caught up in the pack and I was running their race and I wasn't running very efficiently or effectively. I was taking stutter steps. And then I just decided, Johnny, you have to run your own race. And that's when I broke fairly early on from the pack. And it took a lot of grief apparently from the commentators for making a big mistake in so doing. And I just kept running. And the hardest part of that race was staring Bill Rogers in the face the entire time because he was doing the color commentary and was literally 10 feet in front of me the entire time. And knowing Bill well, I couldn't really carry on a conversation with him because I would have been disqualified for receiving aid through conversation. Um, so I literally was out there being as patient as I possibly could while while running within myself because I knew Greta and Ingrid and all the others were back there. And, you know, Greta, Greta was the pre-race favorite and I was just sort of buying time waiting for them to, to catch up with me when the real racing would begin. And uh, it never, it never happened. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a scary thing. I think being out there by yourself, like you said, you know, waiting, waiting, but uh, obviously, um, you had the guts to do it. And, and then, like you said, it was in your, you were running your own race. Uh, not, I, I would always hate that feeling of sort of tripping up on people and hearing them breathe. And it, you know, it's, it's so wonderful to get out either in front or whatever you do to run your own race. Um, so in terms of racing, that has pretty much often been your style, I would say, right, Joni? Uh, right, and I think, the reason being is because so much of my training has been on my own. I mean, I would say 90% of my career training has been on my own. Right. And the only time I really want company is um, during a track workout or on a long run. And I'd take company on the track before I'd take company on a long run. I've had such a struggle with some of my athletes during COVID because they have nobody to train with. And um, it, it's been really hard because a lot of them will just say, well, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna train. I have nobody to run with. And I always try to say to them that that's, you know, that's another part of your training, being able to be on your own, being able to hit the pace you want to. You know? So um, in a sense, you trained yourself to run that kind of race that made you successful. I can't remember how, when you won Boston, um, how you ran that race. I, I kind of don't remember. I remember being with you after the race, but I don't remember how you ran that race. And that was 79, right? My first Boston in 79? Yeah. Yes. Well, again, um, you know, Patty Catalano was the pre-race favorite. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never seen the Boston Marathon course. I didn't look at it before I ran the marathon that year. And I knew there were hills, the heartbreak hills. And I knew I had to be patient early on because it was downhill um, for a while. And I just went out and, and ran. And um, then I saw Patty and, uh, you know, moved up on her and eventually passed her. And I believed or somebody told me that I'd just taken over the lead because I think Patty took that race from the start. Right. And then I remember asking the guy running next to me, I said, so where are these so-called heartbreak hills? And he looked at me 
I was half crazed and said, lady, you just passed them. <laughs> um, you know, the heartbreak hills, they're definitely there, but the crowds was, the crowds were sort of leveling the topography of the course um, because it was packed with people, even though it was a gray day and actually started to rain pretty, pretty hard toward the end of the race. So I would love to just shift from here and just ask you, is there a couple of races, um, like obviously the, the winning the gold medal in, a, in the marathon was an incredible experience. I don't know if you would, you know, that whole idea of a peak experience where everything seems to go well and right. Um, are there other races that really stand out in your mind, uh, one or two of them that are important to you, not necessarily because you won them, although the, that can be part of that answer, but that are just important to you in terms of your running career? Well, I think, um, you know, the first woman's Olympic marathon title was certainly the, the highlight of my career, but the race of my life, I think, um, happened at the trials that year because I really didn't know if I could even go the distance and complete the race, let alone qualify for the team. And I ran that race on a wing and a prayer. I, I seriously did and had nothing left at the finish. And if somebody had tried to test me in the latter stages of that race, I think, you know, half the field would have come flying by me because I had nothing left. And right. fortunately they didn't and I I qualified. Uh, so that was really the race of my life. Another race that that comes to mind was an indoor 3000 meters at the Meadowlands when it was a um, photo finish with Patty Sue Plummer. I ran outside my head that time um, to, to, to tie or, you know, just lose to her at the at the finish. Um, so that was a big, a big uh, race for me. I think the exhibition 10,000 meter race at the LA Coliseum in it was June or July before the actual Olympics opened up um, was another standout race for me. And the World Cross Country Championships in, in Gateshead, I believe that was 1983 as well. And I remember running with Kenny Moore on a training run and I wanted to keep going. And this was like a day or two before the actual <laughs> meet. And, uh, you know, it's just so beautiful running through all the English uh, cottages. And I just, and he kind of said, I think we better turn back. And he didn't tell me then, but he, he knew from that run that, you know, if I was running Boston, that it would be a great race for me. Right, right. So uh, I remember that training run well. Um, but those are the races that really stand out. And then, of course, um, being able to run Boston the year after the bombings with both of our children and then being able to run some marathons with, with Abby. Um, and hopefully there will be more, more of those races and uh, who knows uh, if she'll have a boy or a girl in another month or so. Uh, but if it's a daughter, you know, maybe I can hold on so the three of us can enter a race sometime. Wouldn't that be... <laughs> I love it. If it's you know, a guy, so, we'll do it with a guy too. But uh. yeah. <laughs> so people that are listening um, don't know two things. First of all, that your daughter Abby is going to give birth to your first grandchild in March, which is amazing and exciting. And also that you just had knee surgery uh, last week, um, and it was a partial reconstruction of your knee. Was yeah. That? Yeah. yeah. Too I, many I miles. Too many miles 
And I have a leg length discrepancy, which is a result of the um, ski accident I had way back when in high school. And certainly my stride is not, um, it's, a, it's a signature stride, I guess. It's different from most strides and I've compensated all these years. And in so doing, I wore out the cartilage on my, my right side, but I'm optimistic that the surgery will give me a few more shots at, at some racing and hopefully a couple more marathons. I believe it will, Joni. I truly do. I, I, I know you can't be held down. And uh, I think if anybody's going to do it, you're going to do it for sure. Absolutely for sure. You know, it's so funny because um, talking about Billy Rogers a little bit before, who we all know very well, light as a feather. What, what do you think he is or was? 5'7", 130 pounds, something like that. But I think that about you too, Joni, even though you say you have kind of a signature stride, your lightness, you know, you're just sort of tap, tap, tap as you ran along. Um, and I know as you've gotten older, uh, the first half mile is a little creaky, but once you get going, you look like your old self again. So it will come back. I believe that. Well, I tend to go out slower and pick up the pace um, as I go along. Um, that hasn't always been my way, but it seems to be working for me now. It takes me a while to, to get warmed up. And actually, I came across an old biomechanics study that uh, was done at Nike in 1985. And actually, Tom Clark oversaw the study. And uh, he called what happened to my right knee back then. So Oh really? Bound to bound to to happen, and and I showed the note to the surgeons, and uh, they just shook their heads. They said, "Unbelievable." So. Yeah, that you you you've gone. You went another forty years, probably right, close to that. There is no finish line, right? <laughs> there is no finish line. Yep, it's true. It's true. Well, we're almost there, Joni. I'm going to ask you a couple of other questions, if that's okay with you. You doing okay? I'm an endurance athlete. I'll give you two, two more, maybe three if you're good. Okay, I'll try to be good. I'm trying to think uh, what ones I want to ask you. So um, you've had a few coaches, very few coaches actually over the years. Um, and I put in parentheses of this question, including yourself, because I consider you one of your own coaches. Um, could you talk a bit about those coaches and what the training was like? I especially am interested in um, up, going up to the 84 Olympics. And I think your coach at that time was Bob Seveny. That's right. Um, and, you know, you asked me earlier, you know, what workouts worked for me. And I told you I did everything by the seat of my pants. But I will say that during the course of my marathoning career, I've always tried to include three specific workouts a week. And I count three months back from the targeted marathon date. And one is the long run. And I run that distance, which is 20 miles, um, the way I feel on that particular day. And then one of the workouts would be an interval workout or a track workout or a road race. So that would be my speed work. And then I would do a medium long run of 12 to 16 miles which I'd push the pace a bit. And those were the three, as long as I got those three workouts in every week, it didn't really matter um, right. what I did. A lot of the women today are running mega miles. They're running well over a hundred miles per week. I probably did a dozen, two dozen max weeks of a hundred plus miles during the course of my career. 
Um, most runs were, you know, I just always would run the way I felt. And if I felt good for five days straight, I'd run hard for five days straight. Then I might go through a lull and it was an effort. But um, I always attributed my morning run to maintaining my fitness and my afternoon uh, workout to improving my um, fitness because I was always in the hole a bit coming from the morning run. And it hasn't been very scientific, uh, but it's worked. And you have to, I think today, a lot of athletes um, and technology is great. You know, I do the Apple Watch, Nike Plus, and it's a tool of the devil because, you know, if I look at my watch and I'm not running quite fast enough, I want to bring the pace per mile down. Or if I'm running 9.3 miles or 15K, why am I not running 10 miles? And so, um, but I think, I think that you have to listen to your body and, 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 and that's the most important thing. Uh, sure, you can use the technology as a tool, but most importantly, you need to listen to your body and give your chance of self, uh, yourself a chance to, to recover. So um, anyway, that's, I just wanted to follow up on that a bit. And then you asked me the last question, which was? Coaches. So. Oh. So Bob Seventy, yes, I give a lot of credit to Bob Seventy. I coached with Bob at Boston University for a couple of years, and we would we would meet several mornings a week to go out for runs. Um, and he he he'd show up, and I'd show up, and gave us a time to to catch up and talk about the athletes and 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 run. And then when Bob. Uh, went out to Eugene to coach at Athletics West, um, all he had to do was call me and say, Joni, you should have seen so-and-so's workout. They were tearing up the track. They did this, 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 and this. And what he was actually doing is adding fuel to a fire because I wasn't gonna be outdone by those other workouts that people were doing, but I didn't wanna be in that fishbowl. I like to hold my cards close to my chest. So I didn't want people to know what I was doing, but I didn't mind knowing what they were doing. <laughs> well, did he did he impact your your three workouts a week? Did he change anything with that, or did it sort of was it sort of a cooperative relationship between the two of you in terms of your I training? I think it was a mutually respectful relationship, and um, you know he was he was there leading up to the Olympics uh, when I took the sabbatical from BU to specifically train for LA. And, you know, before that time I was with Liberty Athletic Club and, and John Babington and you were on that team and Lynn Jennings right. and Duke St. Hilaire and some other great, great athletes, Darlene Beckford. And uh, John uh, noticed me at a AAU or Olympic uh, development meet down in Braintree, I think it was Massachusetts. And, at that time, I was running for a team called Country Runners based in Maine. Oh, yeah. There was a 400-meter uh, guy from, from Maine who, to this day, continues to coach at Scarborough High School and has had great success, Ron Kelly. And he would drive me around New England to all these different meets. So, um, you know, I attribute him for, for uh, getting me... Uh, you know, to these races and then for John Babington taking me to the next stage with Liberty Athletics and then Bob for, you know, taking me from, you know, post-collegiate days to 
you know, joining AW and, and, and I asked Bob, you know, and uh, if, if I could stay, um, stay in Maine to train because I've always maintained that an athlete needs to stay in the environment which makes her or him most comfortable. Right. And I was comfortable here in Maine and I stayed here. Now, when I had the knee issues before the Olympic trials, I was in Eugene and, uh, you know, there were a lot of other athletes out there and, and, um, you know, I became familiar with that environment. As a matter of fact, right after the opening ceremonies in LA, I flew up to Eugene just to get away from, you know, the adrenaline rush that was happening with the early success of the, the swimmers. Um, the, the, um, you know, swimming was first up on the slate of Olympic events and, you know, our dorm was right next to the pool and I was losing adrenaline, you know, every time there was an American victory or success, it was like, you know, oh boy. So I got out of Dodge and, and then came back a, a day and a half before, before the Olympics. I'm always astounded that people can go to those Olympic villages. I just read Anna Dane's book, Uncommon Heart, which is really an interesting, really fascinating book, but she actually kind of liked being in that environment. And I personally don't think I could have, I would have felt very, a lot of pressure, you know, not getting the right amount of sleep, all that, so. Well, I stayed with a family uh, in their guest house in Santa Monica, which was literally right off the, the marathon course. And, um, you know, Jacqueline Hansen was very helpful um, in setting that up, uh, one of the great pioneers in our sport. And um, I'm still in touch with the, the woman of the house, the, the husband passed, but, um, you know, and if I hadn't done that, I never would have seen Rosa Moda, who I didn't know, you know, at that time. And I saw this runner and I didn't know who she was, but I had a feeling just based on, you know, her stride and the entourage of people surrounding her on this run that she was probably running the Olympic marathon. And I remember getting on the phone when I got home and this was before cell phones and calling Sev and saying, Sev, I just saw somebody out there and she's running the Olympic marathon, I'll tell you, she's going to win a medal. Yeah. So now I'm, you know, saying, oh, there's Greta and there's Ingrid and there's Lisa and now this person and myself. And, you know, so I, I just, uh, and that's when the same time that um, Jim Fix's widow called me and said, Joni, I didn't know whether to tell you or not, but before Jim passed away, which he had passed that spring, he had picked you to, to win the Olympic marathon. And, you know, he died before I had the knee issues as well. Um, okay. So that must have felt both good and a little bit of pressure for yeah, sure. A little bit of pressure. But, you know, I was still considered the underdog. And, you know, it's so much easier going into an event as an underdog as opposed to the pre-race favorite. And, and Greta had all that weight on her shoulders. Although a lot of the uh, people in, in our sport thought that Ingrid would give her a real run. And I think Ingrid had a faster time in the marathon than Greta, but Greta had all those um, New York City wins. So it was you, Greta, Rosa, and then Ingrid. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's so funny too, um, 
I, I think knowing yourself as an athlete, and I, I do believe, Joni, you've been what I would call a cooperative uh, athlete. I have athletes that I, I feel like I don't necessarily coach, I cooperate with. And I ask them a lot of questions and we talk things over and I love having them. And then there are kids that'll just sort of, you know, give themselves up to whatever I want to do. I would almost prefer to have somebody like you because the feedback is so important as a coach uh, to know what an athlete feels works for them. And also to know that you were an independent, uh, you know, soul. And, and that was an important part of your training and racing for sure. Well, you know, ironically, I, I felt the most at home uh, during the Olympic marathon when I was on the LA freeway because they didn't allow any vehicular traffic on the freeway. And, you know, I felt I was on a back road of Maine. It was sort of a, a gray morning. The fog was slowly lifting and then the sun eventually broke through. But I just put my head back, back on the back roads of Maine, which I had pounded time and time and time again. Well, I'm going to ask you two more questions. One is, what is a day like in Joan Benoit Samuelson's life these days? Because I know you have a lot of other passions besides running. And then the other one is, you can choose. Um, what do you see right now in terms of women's distance running? And what do you see for the future? I think, you know, my days are full. No two days are ever the same. They're all varied, which makes my life very interesting. Um, you know, I'm training every day. I'm emailing every day. I sit on a lot of boards and committees. Um, I'm doing a lot of Zooming that's taken the place of a fair amount of traveling. I didn't travel a lot when the kids were younger because I wanted to be here to, to raise them. Um, but after they um, set out on their own, um, I've been traveling more. And I do miss the traveling. I'm looking forward to getting back to the traveling. I haven't stepped foot on a plane since since March and I'm ready to get going again. Um, so um, yeah, I just, um, you're you know, a gardener too. You, you uh, love to garden. Add my seeds. I, I, I'm a master <laughs> gardener. So I um, grow food for our neighborhood and for local pantries. And I sit on the board of my alma mater and on a couple environmental and uh, wellness boards and, and um, so as I said you know I've got something going on every day and every day is slightly slightly different so well I uh, every it. time I come to visit you you are a whirlwind of, of activity but uh, it's wonderful it's wonderful uh, you certainly are not somebody who ever gets bored as I do not either so that's a good way to be for sure so Joni, if you were to, to talk a little bit about, I, I truly believe that you were in a sense the beginning of this modern woman long distance runner, competitive long distance runner. Do you have a sense of what it is like right now competitively for um, sort of your current stars? And what do you think you know, the future is gonna bring us? Well, I, I'm very hopeful. I think it's a promising, um, promising um, cast of, of runners out there. Uh, I think COVID's been hard on a lot of athletes. Uh, we've lost a few through through COVID, uh, and, and you know, I you know was hoping to run London a year ago, April, and 
I was just holding on by a thread with my knee at that point. And it's like when COVID happened, that was it. I mean, that was the, the straw that broke my knee literally and figuratively. And, and, and I've seen that happening. And now with the Tokyo Olympics being a question mark, you know, that's even going to make it harder if they cancel those games for a lot of the athletes, but runners are strong and, you know, fiercely, uh, devoted to what they're doing and passionate about what they're doing. So I think that, um, you know, when the roads and the tracks truly open up again, um, there'll be a resurgence and a lot of people are, you know, keeping a lower profile um, with the hopes of, of coming back. And, uh, you know, college sports have been hit as well. So, oh, yeah. you know, we don't really know who's in the pipeline, but, uh, you know, I think athletes, student athletes and, and track and field athletes are going to be hungrier than ever when, when we're back to, to our, um, you know, normal, normal uh, schedule of events and, and uh, the doors open. Uh, I just think that people are going to um, be ready to roll. Just even watching some of the track meets, collegiate and just, a, there's been a few, you know, with five or three contenders in each event and all, but all sorts of records are being sent. I think are being set. I think a lot of people have pent up, you know, energy. And you know, in a way, this whole idea of having a consistent period of time to train has mm -hmm. happened to a lot of people. What have they had to do? You know, they can't race, so they're, they're training and they're doing supplemental things. And so, you know, I know this has been so hard on all athletes, but in some ways, I think we're gonna see a lot of really exciting things happen, like you say, once the roads and the track open up. Yeah, and I think our sports you know, are going to um, uh, experience another increase in, in numbers of participants. I know that you know, people just for mental health reasons are getting out there in huge numbers, walking, and in many cases, the walking is leading to running. And so I think you'll see the participation numbers, you know, jump again. Joni, this has been amazing. Um, very succinct. It wasn't too long. I think we spoke just over an hour. Um, is there anything you want to add? To the conversation? What's that? I said a half hour. Oh, I know, but I, I was able to uh, distract you and get you to talk to me for a whole hour. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, I don't know if you could explain to somebody who isn't a runner or hasn't been a runner, um, hasn't been a competitor, you know, how this, this sport gets in your blood. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been able to now be a part of it as a coach, as an observer. And now hopefully as somebody who's sort of a, uh, you know, is collecting those stories. And uh, yours for sure is one of the most fascinating. So thank you so much. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you to Joan Benoit Samuelson for sharing her incredible story. And thanks to Runnerspace for supporting the Women's Running Coaches Collective mission. And if you want to help make a change and get more women involved in coaching, go to www womensrunningcoaches.org. Original music is by Hank Richardson, TV Babe.